0: An unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer.
1: Strippers United will never be divided.
0: Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: LAist Studios.
3: Hi everyone, this is Retake. Every week we offer a critical, informed perspective on what's happening in entertainment and we highlight innovative artists and their creative content. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, bankruptcy is on the horizon for the second largest movie theater chain. Plus, an interview with the director of the latest hit streaming series from Korea, extraordinary attorney Woo. It's continuing to draw in massive viewers on Netflix around the world, The director spoke to us via translator.
2: I'm just delighted that this is happening. And I'm also very curious about um, why there's just so much love from the global audience, because this is very Korea specific and the humor in it is um, very specific to the Korean language.
3: But first, here's my retake for this week. I was attending Comic Con International in San Diego back in 2009, and I struck up a conversation with one of Cameron Diaz's representatives. That Friday was winding down, which meant that traffic back to Los Angeles was building really fast. So I asked this person whether or not he and Cameron Diaz would jump on a train, Amtrak's Pacific Surfliner took me about two and a half hours to return, or wait for traffic to die down. Neither, he said, we flew down. That anyone could possibly defend such a fleeting private jet flight is one thing. That Cameron Diaz, who before Comic-Con had been an organizer of Save Ourselves, the Campaign for a Climate in Crisis, would accede to such a CO2-spewing ride is quite another. Her representative told me he saw nothing wrong with such a short flight, and maybe Cameron Diaz has switched travel agents since. But at that very same Comic-Con, I shared my train with Rob Friedman, who was then the co-chair of Twilight Studios Summit Entertainment and actor Meyer. Next time, see what a thrill it is to fly on a train. For decades, the right has targeted Hollywood as an elitist outpost. And while some of the criticism is displaced and unspecific, there's ample reason to cast the entertainment industry as environmentally hypocritical, because it is. So rather than do as I say about the environment, these high-profile people are actually some of the worst offenders. (laughs) There was a recent examination by a British marketing firm called Yard. The report was titled, Just Plain Wrong, P-L-A-N-E, Celebs with the Worst Private Jet CO2 Emissions. Its research found that private jets registered to a variety of boldface names, including Jay-Z and Taylor Swift, generated 3,376 metric tons of CO2, which is nearly 500 times an average person's emissions. Among the worst offenders, Steven Spielberg. Yes, he has said, quote, I'm terrified of global warming, unquote. But apparently, he's even more afraid of flying commercial. His private jet flights this year already exceeded 60 trips. And it's not just planes. The Los Angeles Times just called out several show business veterans for grossly excessive water usage in the midst of a severe drought that has prompted emergency rationing in some places. According to data from the Los Virginas Municipal Water District that the Times reviewed, Sylvester Stallone's mansion in June used about 533 percent more water then budgeted by the district, which works out to about more than 200,000 excess gallons. Stallone's attorney said the Rocky actor owns hundreds of trees that require water. Hollywood is always quick to tell other people what they should do. If it wants any credibility, it might start by looking in the mirror. Coming up after the break, my conversation with Yuen Seek. He's the series director of the Korean drama Extraordinary Attorney Woo. The city of Seoul might be nearly 8,000 miles from Hollywood, but Korean filmmakers have become prominent in local entertainment circles. Bong Joon-ho's Parasite won five trophies in 2020's Academy Awards, and Squid Game was a streaming breakout last year. Now the Korean drama Extraordinary Attorney Woo has become a huge global hit for Netflix. It's a show about a lawyer who is on the autism spectrum, and she's fighting not only for acceptance, but also for her clients. In fact, she's very good at her job. I recently spoke with the series director, UN Seek, about the making of Extraordinary Attorney Woo and what the show has to say about neurodiverse people. The director is speaking through interpreter, Son Min Ji. I wanna ask you first about how this show started. Did you work? with another writer about developing it? What was the beginning point where the show started to come together? Yes,
2: actually there was another movie um, called, I'll check that out, what the name of the movie is in English now, I'll let you know. Um, the writer that wrote Extraordinary Tony Wu was, was the actual scenario scripter for that movie.
0: So um, the main
2: character of that film was a girl who was on the autistic spectrum, and she um, accidentally saw a murder case, and that's how the movie started. Uh, so the dream job for that girl was, that girl was becoming a lawyer, that but that at the end of the movie she says that I probably can't become a lawyer because I am I have autism and I'm on the autistic um, spectrum, but I can still do something at the court.
0: Uh, Yeah,
2: so she could become a witness. So uh, the name of the movie is Witness. And the producer said that, what if she does become a lawyer? You know, she was a witness here, but what if she does become a lawyer? And that's why um, we met up with the writer for that film. And then uh, we wanted to make a, a series out of a woman who is on the spectrum, but who is a lawyer. So that was the beginning of everything.
3: So the movie was never made.
0: No,
2: actually, it was made and it was very well received. Um, it got an award for script writing and it was actually quite popular in Korea.
3: I want to ask you about autism in Korea um, because I read a story that says, um, and this is from Autism Partnership Korea. I'm quoting a report from one of their officials who says there is much more of a sense of shame, not just for individuals with disabilities, but also for their families. Can you talk a little bit about how autism or neurodisabilities are seen in
2: Korea?
0: Korea
2: is a country that um, evolves really fast and trends trends evolve very fast, so I'm probably not a person to be in the position to be talking about the trend about autism or other disorders.
0: Uh, Um, But what I can tell you is that compared
2: to other more advanced countries where there is already a system in place where they recognize the special needs of people on the autistic spectrum and, you know, give give um, needed care for them. I think um, the starting point was a little slower in Korea, it is true. Um, So that's why I did not expect such an enormous response from the Korean community and the global community when um, a girl on the spectrum was the main lead of the story. So what I felt um, after doing this series is that Unexpectedly. Um, In Korea, there are actually people who are so ready to talk about this, um, ready to um, put this on the table, talk about the autistic spectrum and other disorders. Um, And people are opening up really fast, so I think this could be the start of something, start where people can really um, talk about this in an open manner.
3: There are very few disabled characters in any movies or in any TV series far fewer than there are in the population. And often those characters are depicted in a negative way, a stereotyped way. So how do you go about making sure that your presentation of this character is accurate? I know you're not using an actor with autism, but how did you research to make sure that you were presenting as accurate a depiction of a person on the spectrum as possible?
0: Um, yeah,
2: because I had to portray a character who was on the spectrum, I did an extensive amount of research and studying. I read a lot of books, and I saw like the um, lectures and books of it, this famous person on the spectrum called Temple Grandin. And um, I also watched a lot of YouTube, where like the families of someone on the spectrum would um, upload. Um, clips of how they would act and what they do in their lives. Uh, And what I realized was that, as we can see from the word spectrum, um, there are just so many different sides of them and so many ways um, the spectrum can show in a person.
0: Uh,
2: and I also had a lot of meetings with a professor uh, who uh, majored in you know autism 거쳐 spectrum 거쳐 and um, other related disorders. And the conclusion that I made was that it was meaningless to just think of um, autism as one having one definite characteristic and trying to portray that accurately.
0: 그래서 uh, 자폐인으로서 uh,
2: um, yeah, so first, um, we spotted some characteristics that could be um, common among a lot of different people on the spectrum. And um, through uyung I wanted to portray someone who is willing to communicate with other people, but just doesn't know how. And that's how I um, started building my character.
3: Are there any actors in smaller parts who are... On the spectrum, especially I'm thinking about a character in episode three, the brother of the brother who dies. Mm, cool, cool. I actually know that
2: no, none of the actors were on the 어, spectrum, but the guy that you talked about, I know that he put a lot of um, effort into researching the spectrum. So I think he pulled it off I very well. Um, in Korea, there is a very small pool of people on the spectrum who are acting. Um, so it was difficult for me to find someone, but I hope that this could be an opportunity to, you know, widen that pool.
3: For season two, I hope... <laughs>
2: Um,
3: There are a lot of moments that are funny in this show, and it's hard to have a character who is funny, but that we're not laughing at. So how do you figure out how to make her funny, but that she is funny in her own right, not that we are laughing at her?
2: Um, Yeah, it's a really great question. I really slept on this matter because I thought it was very important to make it funny but not make people laugh at her. And I think what makes uh, a humor offensive or not really is on the attitude. Uh, And um, if people can really put themselves in the shoes of Woo then I think it would be something funny. And if if she makes a mistake, people will think, oh. I can make that mistake too. And then it's funny and they're not laughing at her. So, for example, when uh, Youngwoo goes to like a new place, goes into a new place, she counts to three with her fingers. And sometimes she just blabs on uh, when she's really nervous. And I think that happens to all of us. So people feel that Youngwoo is actually not all that different from any of us. And we all have that side in ourselves to different extents. So I think that's um, what I tried the best to um, make. And I think that is what had led to people not being offended or laughing at her, but just having a good laugh. So I'm really happy that that worked.
3: There are a lot of things that happen in episode three about attorney Wu and how she sees how other people look at people with autism. There's a cab driver who doesn't think she's able to pay for a fare. Her law firm Friend's Friend believes he's volunteering for a disabled organization. And then she sees all the social media comments denigrating people on the autism spectrum. And there's even a comment about Hans Asperger and his work with the Nazis. I guess my question is... Why was that important that you have an episode where she sees the way others see people with autism? It's really about another character in that episode, but it's really about her.
2: Um, yeah, this series poses a lot of different questions to the viewers, but I think one very important question is whether it is possible for a tourney to be a, a tourney. Um, and I think the first few episodes um, was a process in answering that question. Um, so there are a lot of hurdles for her, but there are certain hurdles that she can um, go over by herself with her willingness. But there are also hurdles that are like the stereotypes and what the society sees her. So that is not something that she can, you know, go over on her own. So in episodes one and two, there are very nice, welcoming um, peer attorneys and a nice group of people helping her and she wins. So it all looks rosy. But I thought it was important that in about episode three, we do let people know that actually it's harder in society for autistic people to, you know, get over those hurdles. Uh,
3: My wife is a lawyer for Netflix. I hope you don't have to meet her. (laughs) But she said in episode five, there is a moral dilemma that litigators like her face all the time. And there's also this question about the law firm having great affection for her But they're not necessarily going to protect her. She has to do her own job. So, this also seems to be something that's very important. Yes, she's on the spectrum, but she has to do the right thing. Uh,
0: Yeah, so.
2: As I said in the beginning of the show, um, the question is, can she be a lawyer? And after that, the follow-up question is, can she be a good lawyer? Um, and what makes a good lawyer? That was the question that I wanted to pose. And um, as you said, it doesn't matter if, you ha- if you're have on the spectrum or not. All attorneys probably um, ponder on this question. Um, and I think some of the characteristics that um, a lot of the people in the spectrum have is that they're very frank and that they have very strict moral standards um, and they can be very strict on on themselves. So um, compared to other peer lawyers, she um, puts a lot of thought into whether this is right, and she becomes very sensitive on this issue. So while she won the lawsuit, um, she knows that it wasn't right or just. So this episode is important in that it poses that question to her, what makes a good lawyer?
3: This show is very popular around the world. For you, is it important that people around the world see Koreans in a new light or people on the autism spectrum in a new light is one more important than the other?
0: (laughs) Uh,
2: First of all, I did not expect this to go travel so globally, um, so I never really thought about what message I want to, you know, get across to the global audience. Um, I'm just delighted that this is happening, and I'm also very curious about um, why there's just so much love from the global audience, because this is very Korea-specific, and the humor in it is um, very specific to the Korean language. Um, There could be, like, some tongue twisters that's in Korean, so I'm really um, eager to know about why people across the world are um, loving this drama so much and um, because Korean content has been appealing globally recently, um, I didn't have like um, that uh, greed to you know show the world what Korea's got. I just hope that our story and our message is universal and that people can enjoy it worldwide.
3: You and thank you so much. Thank you, <laughs> John. Okay, good luck. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was You In Seek, the director of the series Extraordinary Attorney Wu, speaking through interpreter Son Minji. The series is available on Netflix now. After the break, could bad box office returns kill another big theater chain? weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. This week we talked about how movie theaters are faring at this stage of the pandemic. Here's my conversation with Suzanne.
1: So back in April, you attended an annual convention for movie theater owners in Las Vegas. And if memory serves me correctly, the mood was pretty giddy, right?
3: Certainly. And certainly compared to the year before, where there was a very limited uh, convention, and the year before that, where there was no convention at all because of the pandemic. The convention is called CinemaCon, and it was essentially this year a pep rally for theater owners. At the very first business session that I attended, uh, a theater owner led the crowd, which is a couple thousand people in a chant of, we are back, we are back, we are back, as if it were some sort of locker room rally at halftime for a football team. And around the same time, I spoke with uh, Tom Rothman. He had Sony Pictures, and I asked him about how things were going because the studio was riding very high at that point thanks to its Spider-Man No Way Home. And here's what Tom Rothman said about how the business was looking right then. Business doesn't survive, it actually thrives. Not only can it survive, It can overcome a global pandemic, uh, which it's in the process of doing. So um, does the business change? Does it evolve? Of course, every business changes and every business evolves. So was
1: Rothman right? Is the movie theater business thriving, John?
3: I think we could file that under alternative facts or fake news, (laughs) depending on what you want to call it. Maybe it seemed that way at the time. It did at the time, but I have talked with you several times about... A couple of issues, how top-heavy the box office is, meaning the hits are doing all the business and other movies aren't. And if you look at the overall numbers, we're at $5.16 billion in ticket sales year-to-date. If you look back at you know the year before that, year before that is pretty good. But if you go back to 2019, the first full year of movies before the pandemic, uh, the numbers were $7.3 billion at this point in the year. In 2018, the numbers were $8.1 billion. So this year is more than 30% worse than 2019, and down about 36% from 2018. And I don't know about you, I cannot think of many businesses that can thrive when they're losing one out of three customers.
1: Oh, that's terrible. So what is behind the downturn? I have to imagine the pandemic shutdowns that affected Hollywood along with every other business practically um, was a factor?
3: It was. And as I said just a second ago, the hits are bigger and the flops are floppier if that's such a word so i want to play a clip from one of the big hits this year the end is inevitable maverick you kind of set it for extinction
1: maybe so sir but not today
3: I think you know that movie. It's Top Gun Maverick. If you look at the top five highest grossing movies this year, Top Gun Maverick, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, Jurassic World Dominion, The Batman and Minions, The Rise of Gru, they together have grossed about $2.2 billion. That's half of all tickets sold. So five films are doing half the business, meaning the other movies are barely surviving at all. And we have something that top-heavy. It's not really good. And then you can look specifically at Marvel movies. So over the last 13 years, Disney and Marvel have released a couple dozen films, worldwide gross of more than $25 billion combined. But if you look at the last year and a half of Marvel movies, they have generally grossed about half of the gross of the movies before the pandemic. So wherever you look, it's bad news.
1: And people are so much more accustomed to watching movies on one of their streaming services. And before the pandemic, people weren't doing that as much.
3: And if you look at the number of major releases, films that are playing in 2,000 theaters or more, compared to 2019, that's down 43%. So almost half as many movies are coming out now as they were a couple of years ago. So some of those movies are going to streaming platforms. Some are getting a limited release rather than a wide release. And we talked about... Bad Girl was what isn't getting a release at all. So yes, far fewer movies, and the movies that are coming out might be going to streaming platforms faster, or going to streaming directly.
1: Although uh, Warner Discovery, which canceled Bad Girl, is making a renewed commitment to theatrical release.
3: Yeah, I just don't see the the um, the attendance there, and I think a really telling story right now is that Cineworld, which is the UK-based company that owns Regal is probably in the next day or two going to file for bankruptcy. And they have said admission levels have been below expectations. They've got a huge amount of debt, $8.9 billion at the end of last year, combined to revenues of $1.8 billion. I mean, you do the numbers. People aren't going to the theaters. These theaters took on a lot of debt to survive the pandemic. And they're not getting ticket sales. So if Regal goes through bankruptcy, I think there's a good chance that AMC, which is the biggest chain around, could face similar similar problems very soon.
1: And uh, before I let you go, a related question about MoviePass. That was the multiplex subscription service that collapsed rather spectacularly Collect- three yeah. years
3: ago. Collapse I is a back. kind word. Um, <laughs> it disintegrated. Yeah. Talk about bad timing. I mean – it is a. The idea was that you would buy Movie Pass and get to go to a, a number of movies uh, every month, regardless of how much they cost in total. Two problems: people aren't going to the movies, so it doesn't really become that necessary. And then other chains like AMC, Regal, and Alamo Drafthouse have started their own versions of a subscription model. And listen, we've talked a lot about subscriptions to streaming platforms. Do you want to get another subscription on top of everything else? Um, I think the odds of MoviePass succeeding are slim and none, and I think Slim just left town.
1: Well, you'll keep an eye on that for us. I've been speaking with KPCC's Arts and Entertainment Reporter John Horn about the British company which owns Regal Cinemas in the U.S. exploring bankruptcy protection among the consequences of a downturn in theatrical attendance. Thank you so much, John Horn.
3: Thanks for listening to Retake. I'll be at the Telluride Film Festival next week, so there will be no podcast. But I'll have lots to tell you about when I come back. So look out for the next episode of Retake, out Friday, September 9th. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. The associate producer is Sabir Brara, with production assistance this week from Lucy Cobb. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to LA podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of LA's indie theaters. Who knows, you might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively but in fact you're connecting with everyone else around you subscribe to how to la
0: from la studios wherever you listen to podcasts